Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I know that some of you reading even the title might feel a little bit triggered or even a little bit wary, and so I want to give you a description of what this podcast episode is going to be about so that you can make informed, knowledgeable choices about whether you want to continue with this episode or not. A lot of times when we talk about consent and coercion, we're talking about sex, but that is not this episode. We are not talking about sex or sexual assault at all in this episode. This episode is going to be really focused on religious consent and religious coercion. So I want you to understand that we are going to be talking specifically about spiritual abuse, mental and emotional abuse that come in a religious setting, and also sometimes in a familial setting, because those two things are really closely tied together. Fundamentalist religion is often inherently tied to codependent and sometimes abusive family relationships because they're so intertwined, the family and religion. There is still a trigger warning here because we are talking about abuse and emotional, mental, and spiritual abuse are just as valid as sexual abuse and they can be just as destructive to our sense of self. They can make us feel defiled. They can make us feel unworthy. So I want you to know that ahead of time. We will be talking about stories and about examples of coercion in religion because I feel like it's so important for us to hear other people's stories and it helps us get curious about our own experience and really peel back the layers of what happened to us. Because the more we can understand what happened to us, the more we can own our story and actually become free of it. But I don't want you to dive into it until you're ready. Marlene Winnell, who is actually the therapist that coined the term religious trauma syndrome, actually talks about religious indoctrination, especially from high demand and fundamentalist religions, as mind rape. So what we're talking about today could be highly triggering. And I want to make sure that you know ahead of time before you consent to listen. And I also want you to know, like all consent, A yes right now at the beginning of this episode does not mean you're committed to listening to the whole thing at any point. Please feel free to change your mind, to push pause, to come back to it later, and to self-care or to not come back to it later. That is also a choice that you can make. You are free to make decisions throughout the entire process that keep you safe and help you feel whole. And I want you to know that I definitely support that. Listen to your inner knowing. 
Okay, this episode, there are so many things we could talk about with consent, and I actually decided just to condense it down to one thought, which is what is the difference between consent and coercion? For many of us, we can't tell the difference because we've lived in an environment where coercion has been used so often, sometimes we can't tell the difference between consent and coercion. In fact, for me, when I would think of consent, even as recently as just a couple of years ago, what I knew about consent was that it was agreement. I thought that if I verbally or non-verbally agreed by just kind of going along, that I had consented. And sometimes I thought that decisions I made when I was a child were consent for my entire life. Things like baptism. I thought that if I said yes to the church when I was a child, that I was then held responsible to say yes for my entire life. I thought also that if I had said yes to do something a year ago, because it was a good fit a year ago, that that also obligated me to say yes now and forever because my time and talents did not belong to me. They belonged to God. So there's a really warped and twisted way of looking at consent, I feel like, sometimes in high-demand religions and in authoritarian organizations, because when we're conditioned to give over our authority to other people, just naturally what comes along with that is a misunderstanding of consent and our own power. Okay, so let's really dig in. What is consent if it's not just agreement, because consent is not just agreement. It's so much more than that. Consent, according to Brent Sanders, who is a sexual assault educator in Australia, consent is giving permission or changing your mind freely. I want you to think about your religious experience and ask yourself, was I allowed to say no? Was I given time to really tap into what I wanted or what my values were or what would be the best fit for me? Was I allowed to say no without danger to my reputation or my relationships? Was I allowed to say no after I had said yes? If I accepted an assignment but then got into it and realized this really actually isn't a good fit, was I then allowed to change my mind? If I began attending the religion and even got baptized in the religion, was I freely allowed to change my mind later and quit going to church? Really think about the decisions you made in religion. How free were you to say no in the first place or to dissent or to have different opinions? How free were you to go against the grain, to go against the groupthink? How free were you if you did say yes at the beginning as you got new information? How free were you to change your mind? Was there guilt or fear or shame involved? Were there threats involved? What Brent says is... Freely means without being subjected to threats, 
like hell or damnation, force, violence, even if it's mental violence and emotional violence, not just physical violence, coercion, and we're going to get really into what coercion means, manipulation, or deception. If any of those things happened, you weren't able to freely consent because consent requires that you're not forced, that you're not deceived, and that you have all the information and you get to choose and re-choose freely. Another speaker that I listen to is Joy Short. She's actually the founder of Consent Awareness Network, and she talks to different corporations about consent and what it means, and she does a lot of sexual assault awareness. And she says, consent is freely given, knowledgeable, and informed agreement. And I think that's a really big deal, too, to add that knowledgeable and informed. I want you to think about your religious experience. Were there ever decisions you made without all the information? Were there ever decisions you made when you didn't really understand the information? That isn't consent. If we're making decisions based on false information or not having all the information or not really understanding what we're getting into, it's not really consent. So as we're going through what consent is and what it is not and what coercion is, I want you to really keep on your mind, did I give consent to what I participated in with regards to religion and or family dynamics? Think of your own stories and hold them up against what we're talking about with consent and coercion. Chances are you already have some like feelings about places where you were coerced. You may feel angry about those places. You may feel ashamed. You may feel guilty. You may feel afraid. Remember, as we're talking about listening to our emotions to help us figure out what's going on, this will really help you start to make sense of some of those emotions. Those emotions show up for a reason because you don't feel free. Because remember, consent is freely given agreement. Make sure you pay attention to those places and we're going to dig in. So we're going to talk about some things that are often mistaken for consent and kind of pull those apart first. So the first one is assent. When we agree to the face value of something, we assent to it. So for instance, if you're investigating a religion and they're telling you all of the good parts of the religion, because as we know, religion has some good parts like community and service, and it can even help you like add structure to your life, give you some great public speaking skills like it gave to me. It can give you connection. It can give you the ability to feel like you have family if that's not something that you've had before. So there's some positive parts to religion, but there's also some drawbacks and we need to know the good and the bad to make an informed decision. So if someone's giving you all the good stuff, but they're not talking about some of the drawbacks, that is assent because you don't have all of the information. So maybe 
you are agreeing to part of it, but not all of it. Maybe you say yes to eternal families, but no to being shamed. Maybe you say yes to, like, let's say on a Mormon mission, an LDS mission, and you guys, I'm going to be talking a lot from my own personal experience, so there will be a lot of stories about Mormonism here because that's my experience, but this applies to any fundamentalist or orthodox religion. You have your own stories. Really look for those parallels. So I will do my best to really describe any verbiage that I'm using that might feel foreign to someone from a different faith, but I promise this can be applied across the board. And you guys, I said I wasn't going to talk about sexuality, but this one is going to bring up some sexuality. So buckle up if you need to, like, go ahead three, four, five minutes and just skip past it. But we're going to talk about bishops interviews and inappropriate sexual questions. In Mormonism, assent shows up, for instance, in bishop interviews. So when you turn eight years old, you start going and having an interview with the bishop who is like, the pastor or the preacher. He's the head of the congregation. And in Mormonism, the bishop is a man who has been ordained to the priesthood, but it's not like other religions. He also has a job outside of the religion because we have a completely lay clergy. And so he might be a plumber by day, and then in the evenings and on Sundays, he's our bishop. Now, bishop interviews are meant to ascertain your worthiness for things like baptism or going to the Mormon temple. And we may be okay as parents or even as children who are going to these interviews because you have these interviews even as adults. You start when you're eight and this goes all the way up until you die if you're an active Mormon. You may be okay with questions about your faith or your testimony. That might all feel okay to you, but you might not be okay being asked about your sexual activity. In fact, just a few years ago in Mormonism, there was a man named Sam Young who had been a bishop and had never engaged in asking people really deep questions about their sexuality. And when I say about their sexuality, I mean not just their sexual orientation, but their sexual practices, like down to the minute details. And he found out his daughters had been asked highly inappropriate questions as young girls, as young as 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, in these one-on-one interviews with these bishops. So assent as a parent in that situation is, Yes, let's sign you up for an interview. They're going to ask you about your faith. They're going to ask you about your scripture reading. They're going to ask you if you're attending your meetings. They're going to just talk with you about any questions you have about the gospel, about scriptures, anything that you're not understanding about our doctrine. But what we're not aware of is that many bishops, not all, are asking highly inappropriate sexual questions of young men and young women alone and sometimes adult men and women alone in their offices without any sort of supervision. So we may assent to an interview 
about our faith, but not to highly inappropriate sexual questions. This also happens on LDS missions. Many young men and women sign up for missionary service with the idea that they're going to go and serve others and make the world a better place and travel and learn languages. But what they might not be prepared for is sketchy medical care. Often whenever missionaries in the LDS church get sick and they're in foreign countries, sometimes they're not given access to medical care. Often their passports are confiscated if they're going to foreign countries. The inability to come home or even call home when there's family emergencies or deaths or divorces or things like that. So on the one hand, they may be signing up for service and doing good in the world and having an adventure, learning a new language, but they may not be signing up for the fine print, which is you're stuck here. We control your coming and going. We control whether you get to talk with your family at all or process trauma. And we control your access to medical care even. That would be assent where we agree to part of it, but we don't agree to all of it. This also happens too when we're sold a story at the beginning, but then there's a bait and switch. So when we're told it's going to be one way and we fully consent to what we're told, and then when we get into it, there's a bait and switch, and then actually what it is underneath the surface is completely different. Okay, the next one I want to talk about that is closely, sometimes closely tied to consent, but is completely different is acquiescence. And so acquiescence is agreement under duress. So when someone agrees out of fear, that person is not consenting, they're acquiescing. And there's a big difference. So this happens in religion, as far as I can see, in baptism. We tell children and even adults who are being baptized, if you aren't baptized, you won't go to heaven. You can't be with your family because of sin and no unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God. That's fear-based. Do this or you're going to burn in hell or you'll be damned forever or you can't be with your family. Like That's some serious mobster talk right there. That is acquiescence under duress. Because there's a threat if you don't agree. Also with baptism, if you've been told your entire life, when you turn eight, you're going to be baptized and there's going to be this great party and we're all going to be so proud of you for making that decision to follow Jesus. When you sense your family would be proud of you if you get baptized, but disappointed and maybe even ashamed of you if you don't get baptized, That is also agreement under duress because there's a very real threat to your well-being if you don't go along with the plan. That is not consent. And don't even get me started. On age, you can't consent at the age of eight. You are not able to make a lifelong decision at the age of eight. 
I would argue you're not able to make a lifelong decision at any point in your life because we evolve as people. We grow, we learn new information, we have life events happen to us that change us dramatically. We can have an idea of where we want to go in our 20s that might change completely by the time we're 40 or 50 or 60. But this is especially true for children whose prefrontal cortexes are not fully developed. We're talking about children who still believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy often. They cannot make decisions that affect the rest of their life. They are unable to give informed consent. This acquiescence also happens in LDS temple ceremonies. The temple, I know there are some people that are like, what is that? So there's regular congregations. We have regular church buildings. But temples are places you have to qualify to get into by paying your tithing and by living according to the rules of Mormonism, just to put it as simple as possible. I know there will be some people that are like, that's not exactly right, but In as simple terms as possible, it is paying 10% of your income and then following all of the rules of Mormonism. Now, in a temple ceremony, you're in there with your entire family. And it's quiet, everyone's sitting down, and there's this place at the beginning of the temple ceremony where they say... If anyone would like to withdraw of their free will and choice, and I'm probably messing up the words, but if anyone would like to withdraw of their own free will and choice, they may do so now. No one is going to get up and walk the walk of shame out of the room. No one is going to do that. And no one is going to do that, especially because we still don't know what we're going to covenant to. I took all of the temple preparation classes. I was so excited for my super secret ceremony where I was going to have further light and knowledge from God. And so I took all of the temple preparation classes that were available at Brigham Young University. I read a book by one of our 12 apostles that was supposed to tell you all about the temple. It was like 250, 300 pages long. It's all underlined. I still own this book. It's all underlined. I read everything I could get my hands on, and I had no idea what I was going in and making covenants to do. I did not know what the exact covenants were. I didn't know what I would be promising. I didn't know the language. But I was invited before hearing these things to withdraw my consent. But if I stayed in that chair, which I did, I was saying yes before I even knew what I was saying yes to. And not only was I saying yes, but I was in the room, like in the front of the room with all of my family and friends there and my future husband there to make promises that I didn't even know what those promises were. And if I had walked out of the room, there was this very real sense of I will not only shame myself, but my family. Because in Mormonism, parents are often held accountable for what their children do. And I know there are some of you listening saying, that's not true. We're only held accountable for our own choices. And we have stories and doctrines about how when parents sin, it passes down those sins to the third and fourth generation of their progeny. 
parents feel responsible for their kids' choices, and they feel like it reflects on their parenting. So we don't want to make our parents feel bad, and we don't want to shame ourselves. We don't want people to think badly of us, and so we acquiesce to things, and we say yes to things out of duress, out of fear, out of shame. That is not consent. So we know that consent is not assent where we're saying yes to the face value of what's presented to us. And we know that it's not acquiescence where we're saying yes out of duress. But how can we tell if it's coercion or if it's consent? Because sometimes we feel like we're saying yes of our own free will especially you guys, when we're out of touch with our authentic selves. If we've been persuaded over time to give up parts of our authentic selves and to take on a pseudo identity to keep ourselves safe and to belong. If we've been told that certain feelings are not okay to feel and we've stuffed them and we've learned to thought stop, we might not even know what our own values and desires are when we're in high demand religion. We're so enmeshed and so codependent with the religion that sometimes we can't even figure out what is us and what is the group. And when we're in that place, it can be so difficult to tell, am I actually consenting? Is this a free yes from me or is this coercion? So we're going to get into coercion and what it looks like and really kind of pull that apart. So buckle up for this. Coercion at its very core is any attempt to control your behavior with threats or manipulation. And this gets really, really tricky in religion because often it's done with a happy face. Often when we think about threats or manipulation, we're thinking about something that looks like how we've been conditioned to think of violence. We think of guns involved, right, or death involved. But when it comes to religion, we've been conditioned to, A, believe that religion is, for the most part, good, and B, that religion makes you happy. And everybody there has on their prim, proper, happy faces. And so this can't really be a place of coercion. This can't be a place of threats or manipulation, can it? And yet, I think you'll find that a lot of these things fit when it comes to religious decisions, especially in high-demand authoritarian religions. First, if you only consent because you want the other person to stop pressuring you or threatening you, you didn't really consent. If they won't accept no and they keep trying to pressure you to change your mind, it's coercion. Once you turn down an invitation or an assignment, the story should stop there. So if your no is not respected and people keep pushing you to say yes and keep trying to influence you, that's coercion. You're being worn down. The way I see this, particularly as an ex-Mormon, is continued visits to my house, emails and communications by members when I stopped coming to church. And we're not just talking about friends coming over and being like, hey, what's going on? That didn't happen very often. It's the let us come sing carols to you. 
Let us drop something off for your kids. Let us leave a little note with you. Let us leave a religious magazine with you. Let us keep coming and visiting you and giving you a religious message. I get an email every single week that talks about what's going on in our local congregations. I get emails inviting me to go and clean the church for free on my Saturday mornings. This is not consent. Just because they have my email address doesn't mean that they should be able to use it without my consent. So I've actually emailed people and said, hey, can I get off of these message boards? And I now know how to do that, but in the past I did not. And instead of someone being like, this is how you do that, just radio silence, or I'm sorry, you're on my email list, so you're going to get an email, or I'm sorry, your child is a child of record, so we're going to bring them treats whether you like it or not. Not consent. That is coercion. Underneath this umbrella is also when people make threats like your kids are going to become delinquent and it'll be all your fault or you're going to get a divorce and it'll be all because of you leaving the religion or making some choice that isn't in alignment with what your parents or the pastors want you to do. Guilt tripping is also a big one and emotional blackmail and we'll talk about those a little bit more later. Two, If you agree because you feel obligated or don't want someone like your parents, religious leaders, or God to get mad, it's coercion. It is not consent. So there's this story. We had been married maybe five years at this point, and I kept getting callings. In the LDS church, you are voluntold to do things in the congregation, and we're told that we're never supposed to say no to a calling because it comes straight from God and you just don't tell God no. And I could not get pregnant at this time. I was having infertility issues. I felt worthless because my job as a woman was to bear children and to be a mother. And so I felt incomplete and I felt worthless because I thought God was mad at me or thought that I would not be a good mother because I could not conceive and I could not bear a child. And so I kept being given nursery callings. Nursery callings are where you are watching the 18-month-old to three-year-old children in the church. And the first time it was okay. The second time it was really painful And this was the third time I was being called to work with the children when I could not have children and it was so triggering and difficult. And I was crying as the bishop was extending this calling to me. And I felt obligated to say yes because I had covenanted in the temple that I would give all of my time, my talents, and everything the Lord had blessed me with to the church. I covenanted that. I said yes to that. Granted, I didn't know I was going to have to say yes to that walking into the temple that day. We talked about that earlier. But I had said yes to that, and I held myself to that promise, which meant if the church asked anything of me, Time, talents, and everything the Lord has blessed you with is pretty comprehensive. 
And if I had to go and be traumatized every Sunday as I dealt with other people's children, when I couldn't have my own and I thought God was mad at me, then I thought I needed to say yes. And I'm sitting here bawling and I'm saying yes. But my body language, everything about my body language was saying no. And no one thought to ask me, do you really want to say yes to this? Everyone went along with my yes. And that was considered consent. But it was not consent because I was saying yes because I felt obligated. And I didn't want God to be angry with me for turning down something that I thought he was giving me. A gift, possibly, that he was giving me or a growing experience. And as difficult as it was, I thought God was teaching me a lesson. That is not okay. And it is not consent. And I've seen this also with clients or others on social media who tell me that they're going through religious transition, but they are continuing to go to church to keep their parents from getting mad or to keep their significant others from getting mad. I know that I have family members that went on missions in order to keep our parents from feeling disappointed or angry. This is something that I have seen happen for a long, long time where people say yes to things in order to keep people from getting mad. And it's coercion. It's not consent. The next thing I want to bring up is number three, being a believer or a member or raised in the religion does not mean you automatically consent to all of it. I know that some people, because you were there at the church, believed that because you were coming to church, you agreed with all of it and you also should participate in all of it. And there was a lot of like guilting and a lot of shaming if you were picking and choosing what you wanted to take home and what you didn't. So if the the term cafeteria Mormon was often used in Mormonism, um, and I'm sure there are other cherry-picking type derogatory labels that are given in other fundamentalist religions for people who take what works for them and leave what doesn't. If there's shame involved for being someone who feels like they can only take what works for them, then it's not consent. It's coercion. If anyone threatens you with losing your favored position in the home, congregation, or with God, if you feel like you won't be chosen or the golden child or respected, if you say no, it's coercion. If you're threatened with a loss of blessings or if you're threatened with being punished, if you say no or if you dissent, it's coercion. It is not consent. If you're threatened with a loss of relationship, if your parents are threatening to kick you out of the house, if you're threatened with losing your position at church, if you're threatened with not being allowed to come to Bible study, if you're threatened with not being part of the in crowd, losing your temple recommend if you're Mormon, it is coercion. It is not consent. And last, if you are threatened with the loss of reputation, 
the what will people think or if you're threatened with a disciplinary counsel or an excommunication. Loss of reputation, you guys. It is coercion. It is not consent. Number five is social pressure. If there's this idea that if you say no, there's something wrong with you, it is coercion, not consent, because they're using shame. There's something wrong with you. That's the definition of shame. If you turn down a calling, you're turning down God. I talked about that earlier. We actually have an apostle, Dallin H. Oaks, that said, just as service in the church is not sought, it is not turned down. So if you turn down something, there's something wrong with you. You're not a good congregant. You're not a good member. You're not a good Christian. You're not a good Mormon. If there's this idea that if you say no, you're not a good whatever, you're not worthy somehow, you're not good enough, it's coercion, not consent, because they're using shame as a control tactic. Next is emotional manipulation, and I was actually just having a huge conversation with someone on Instagram about this, and there was actually a a Reddit post where we were going back and forth on this as well. So this is a big deal, you guys, and it happens across religions. If someone uses their emotions to deliberately try and convince you to change your mind, it's coercion. On Reddit, there was this post about a person leaving their religion, and the dad sent a text and said, you know, your mom, you've made your mom so sad and she just lays in bed and cries all day long because of your choices. That is emotional manipulation. It is not your fault that your mom is laying in bed and crying all day. And it is not your responsibility to make your mom happy. You can talk about emotions. Your mom's allowed to be sad but she's not allowed to use her sadness to manipulate you. We also hear often, we're so disappointed in you, as if that disappointment is supposed to really make you think about what you did and change your mind. If people in your life refuse to talk to you until you give in or attempt to sway you by trying to get sympathy, it's also coercion. If they're passive-aggressive, If they tell you, oh, that's fine, or, you know, you're free to make your own choices, but then they stomp off, or they slam doors, or they give you the cold shoulder, or they hang their head as they walk away, or they burst into tears every time they see you, it is emotional manipulation, and it is a form of coercion. It is not consent. I feel like I'm going to say that over and over and over again. There are a myriad of ways that we can coerce one another, and so many of them happen in high-demand religion. The next one is guilt trips. When you care for someone and you don't want to hurt them and they use that to their advantage to try and persuade you, it is coercion. I had a client whose dad said, well, you must not love me like you say you do. You need to prove to me that you love me. Guilt tripping. I didn't ask for this. I don't deserve this guilt tripping. I've lost all of my friends because of your decision. Guilt tripping. I gave birth to you and you owe your life to me. Guilt tripping. They can also use guilt tripping by making it seem like you did something wrong. Like you just want to sin. 
And it puts this burden of proving that you are good enough and that you didn't just want to sin. It's one of the reasons so many of us research and research and research and research and reach out to people is because we're trying to prove that we didn't just want to go off the deep end when the fact of the matter is that's a coercion tactic to tell us that we just wanted to sin or we were just lazy. It's a guilt tripping and it puts a burden of proof on us to prove that we're not bad and it's not okay. It's coercion. Number eight is they deny you affection or acceptance. You guys, this is where shunning comes in. And whether the shunning is an actual doctrine, like in the Jehovah's Witnesses, or if it's just kind of, you know, implied and not exactly frowned upon like it is in Mormonism or some fundamentalist Christian sects, or if it's just an individual family by family basis, shunning is a form of coercion. If people push you away or avoid you or they don't want to touch you or communicate with you, or they make mocking or rude comments about you, that is coercion. You are being shamed as a way to bring you back into doing what makes them comfortable. They're hoping that by treating you badly that you're going to change your mind to get that good relationship back. And I think what people don't understand is once you've done that to someone, it's really hard to go back to the good relationship. Like it just kind of destroys the bridges. But sometimes in the short term, it does work and people do come back because all of us have a biological need to be connected. You guys, loneliness kills. Did you know that The mortality rate for loneliness, for feeling alone, the mortality rate is the same as smoking. It is highly deadly to be alone. We have this biological need to connect. And so when people say, well, you can't be a part of our group anymore. I won't be your friend anymore. You're not welcome in the family anymore. It feels like life or death because it is. Now, I say that. We have the ability to make new friends and make new family and make new connections. But in the moment, it feels like life or death. Because if we don't make those new connections, it's deadly. So shunning, huge coercion tactic. Number nine is they make you feel bad about yourself. Put downs or attacks on your self-worth are a coercion tactic. Calling you a sinner, a lazy learner an apostate, evil, Satan spawn, any of those kinds of things, the black sheep even. These are all meant to attack your character or your self-worth or things like you are nothing without God or look how selfish you are. And in the LDS church, there is an apostle that said, where will you go? What will you do? Which reminds me so much of an abusive significant other, an abusive partner being like, who else would want you? Who would take you? You're nothing without me. All of those are coercive tactics. Number 10 is insisting you have to follow through because of earlier consent. And consent in the past doesn't mean consent in the present or the future. I told you how earlier I had consented to 
giving all my time, talents, and everything the Lord had blessed me with to the church. And I thought that applied for the rest of my life. Whether I was depressed, whether I was drowning in infants and toddlers, whether we were stretched emotionally already, it didn't matter. I had made a promise whenever I was 20 to give everything I had to the church. No stipulations, no qualifiers. That earlier consent did not apply to the rest of my life. You can change your mind at any time for any reason. I had kids. I had no idea how hard it was going to be to have kids until I had kids. The things that I consented to when I was 20 when I had no kids should not have applied to me when I was a mom at home alone raising a four-year-old and an infant while my husband was deployed for 18 months. I should not have felt obligated to give a part-time job's worth of service while carting around two small children and not sleeping while my husband was deployed. I should have had the ability to say yes or no freely, but I didn't feel that because I had earlier consented before I ever had kids and when I was still, honestly, mostly a naive child. You can change your mind at any time and for any reason. Otherwise, it's not consent, it's coercion. 11. Over-the-top affection and compliments you guys who have come from authoritarian religions that have mind control tactics. You know this is love bombing. They give you gifts, compliments, and affection so that you'll reward their generosity with compliance. Now, it's not always coercion if someone's giving you gifts or lots of compliments, But you can tell if it's coercion if when you say no, they respectfully step back. But if they keep pushing, it is coercion and it's not okay. Number 12, not giving you a chance to say no. Has this happened to any of you? I want to say something here. Sometimes people would talk really fast and push to the conclusion without giving me a chance to really think. I didn't have a chance to really consider, do I have the time for this? Do I have the resources for this? Is this something I want to do? That's coercion, not consent. If you feel afraid or unsure of how to say no, if you feel like it's unsafe to say no and you're not really sure how to say it or you're confused, it's not consent. If you say nothing because you don't know what to say, Or if you laugh nervously, it's not consent. If someone doesn't check your boundaries or walks all over your boundaries, it's not consent. Just because someone pushed past your boundaries and did it anyway does not mean you consented to it. Or people coming at you when you're tired, stressed, depressed, anxious, grieving, It's not consent because you're not in your right state of mind to make a fully informed decision. And what really bothers me about this is often when cult-like behavior is being used in an organization, they specifically target people who are in stress, who are tired and stressed and depressed and anxious and grieving and lonely and in life transition because it's easier to get consent. 
it's easier to manipulate somebody who is in that state of mind. It's not okay. It is coercion. It is not consent. Three more, you guys. 13 is deception. If you aren't given all of the information or there is a bait and switch. In the LDS church, we have a big truth problem. I studied the religion, what was published by the church inside and outside, you guys. I went to extra religion classes when I went to BYU. I audited an additional five to seven hours of classes every semester, trying to soak up and learn everything I could. I mean, looking back, that was shame-driven because my family were converts and I didn't feel as good as some of the fifth-generation LDS people I was going to school with. And so my solution to that was to attend all of the religion classes I could because where else was I going to get such a great religious education as at the religious school, right? The school sponsored by the church. So I was going to all kinds of theology classes and I was really digging deep and I still didn't know a lot of our church history. I learned more from an episode of South Park about what really happened in the creation of my church than I learned from four years of attending, I don't know, 30 to 40 college credit hours of religious classes. Not to mention all of the study. I have notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of notes from reading scriptures and listening to talks and taking notes and journaling and pondering. The way I go about my work here is how I went about my religion. And I still didn't know the half of it. The creators of South Park, because they were free to look at resources outside of what the correlated approved material for the organization was, knew more about my history than I did because I was only fed a steady stream of church-approved materials that painted the church in a very Disney-esque, fairy tale kind of a way. And many of the hard truths were left out. That is not consent, because what I thought I was consenting to was a lie. It was a bait-and-switch. We talked earlier about when we aren't allowed to consider our wants and needs. If we're not given time or permission, right? If it's not okay for us to check in with ourselves and to make decisions that are in alignment with our authentic values and wants and desires, so many religions call that selfish. So many religions call that carnal to check in with ourselves and see if it's what we want. I mean, not my will, but thine be done is a huge thing in Christian religions, including Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. We all have that sentiment in our doctrine in one way or another, that if my will is out of alignment with the church's will, that I'm to blame, that there's something wrong with me. That is not consent. It is coercion if I'm not allowed to check in with myself and stay true to my values, my wants, and my desires. If I'm not allowed to be in alignment with myself, if I have to put that off to be in alignment with the group, not consent. And then last, power dynamics and age. If you are a child, you are not able to consent. 
So anything you consented to in the church, any oaths, covenants, promises you made when you were under the age of 18 are null and void because you were a child. It's not possible for you to have all of the information and to consent when you're eight or an infant or when you're 12 or even when you're 16. Your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. You can't make life covenants. You can't make life promises when you don't have all the information and you're not capable of completely critically thinking about things logically. You just can't. And also when there's power dynamics. If there is someone who holds the keys to your eternal salvation and you're told that they will judge you and they ask you to do something, it won't feel like you can say no. Because when one person has a power advantage over the other, it changes our ability to consent freely because they hold the ability to admit us into heaven or not. They hold the ability to decide whether we're worthy to go to the temple or worthy to participate in other religious rites. They decide if we can get married in our chapel. They decide if we're able to get married in our temple, if power dynamics are a thing and it's a problem. When we don't feel like we can say no to people who hold authority in our church. One of the other things I covenanted to when I went into the temple, one of those other things I was not told about before I went in to the temple when I was 20 was no evil speaking of the Lord's anointed. I covenanted that I wasn't allowed to be critical of leaders' words or actions. I wasn't allowed to dissent no evil speaking. And that was interpreted to mean no dissension, no disagreement, no looking at their behavior to see if it was in alignment with the church teachings, no talking about whether they were homophobic or racist. I wasn't allowed to talk critically about the leaders. Or at least I felt like I wasn't because I had made a covenant that I would not talk badly about the leaders of the church. That's a lot, you guys. That's a lot. Part of the reason I wanted to do this was just so we could start peeling back the onion layers. Thinking about our time in our respective churches and religions and thinking about our decisions and really asking ourselves, did I consent to that? Did I fully understand what I was doing? Did I have all of the information? Did I have all of the facts? Did I understand what I was saying yes to? Were there power dynamics at play? How old was I when I made this decision? Was I afraid of being kicked out of the group? Was there shame or fear involved? Did I feel manipulated or coerced in any way? Was this decision made under duress, out of fear? Were there any threats involved? If the answer to any of that is yes, we didn't consent. 
We may have been coerced. We may have assented. We may have said yes to the part that we knew about, but we would have said no to the parts we didn't know about. And we may have acquiesced out of fear or duress. We may have gone along with it because it was safer to do that than it was to say no. Now, I know there will be some people listening to this episode and saying, but there are no perfect organizations. There's no such thing as a place where there is no coercion. And I don't think anyone who has gone through religious transition expects there to be a perfect organization, a perfect church leader, a perfect system at all. What we're looking for is accountability. The ability to talk about what's happening. Anytime there is a collection of human beings, there will be harm, whether it's accidental or intentional, doesn't matter. We will step on each other's toes. Sometimes our racism will come out. Sometimes our ableism or our ageism or our misogyny. Sometimes our homophobia will come out. There will be things that are controlling that will come out. What protects us isn't being in a society that is free of these things, but where we can freely talk about these things, where we can say, hey, that's harmful. This is how it affected me. Where we can say, I feel coerced. I don't feel like I'm getting to make a decision freely where we get to explore and critically think and set boundaries and discuss conflict. But when we are in authoritarian organizations where we're not allowed to critically think about our doctrine, where we're not allowed to criticize the actions and words of leaders, where we're not allowed to freely dissent or change our minds, we get abuse. Religion that is coercive is abusive. It causes trauma. It causes PTSD and CPTSD. It causes us to question our worth, question our place in the world, question our lovableness and our acceptableness. And it is not okay. If you're listening to this and you realize that you've been in systems that have been coercive, where you haven't been able to give consent, I urge you to please seek support as you're undoing this, as you're creating healthier spaces for yourself. Seek for someone who can help you recognize patterns that are coercive. If you've grown up in a family or in a religion, or both, where you are often coerced into going along with the group narrative, you may feel disempowered to make decisions for yourself. You likely have people-pleasing tendencies. It may be really hard to rock the boat. Allow someone to help you and support you. As you learn who you are and what you want and how worthy of love and belonging and acceptance you are, Allow someone to support you as you find the language to set boundaries with family and religious people. Allow someone to support you as you explore how these coercions have affected your life 
and to hold space for you to grieve, to feel angry, to work through feelings of resentment or even shame or guilt about lost time or decisions you made while you were in the church. The future is wide open. Things in your past have happened that can't be changed. But you can change everything in your present and everything you choose in the present affects your future. You've got this. You can break old patterns. You can break old chains. You can release shame and guilt. You can really anchor into self-worth and learn to love not just your life, but yourself. Because you are worthy of love and belonging. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I am going to be headed to Texas. In fact, as you're listening to this, I will be driving down to Texas to spend time with my family. And I probably won't be on social media quite as much. I'll be spending time with my mother and with one of my siblings and my nieces and nephews. Having some summer fun with my kids. And I look forward to having discussions with you after I return. The newsletter still will be going out. If you're not subscribed to the newsletter, I highly encourage you to do that. Go to the website at emancipatedcoaching.com. Subscribe to the newsletter. Not only will you get the weekly newsletter that has usually like some sort of journal prompt in it or some sort of tool to add to your arsenal as you're deconstructing or rebuilding, it'll also give you access to my mini course on perfectionism. If you've been listening to the podcast and you found that it's really difficult for you to allow yourself to make mistakes or to open up to new possibilities and you're afraid of failure or you're afraid of doing it wrong, please go sign up for the newsletter simply so you can get access to that perfectionism course. But also sign up for the newsletter because there's good stuff in there every single Tuesday. So Tuesdays are when the newsletter goes out and there's always like little goodies. Plus you'll be the first one to hear about new courses and you'll be the first one to get discounts and like workshops because all of that is coming too. Also, please, please, please share this with family and friends who need it. Anyone you feel like could use this podcast, you guys, it warms my heart to know that this is making such a difference in your lives, and I want to touch as many lives as I possibly can because this stuff helps us feel less alone. It helps us create beautiful lives. It creates more empathy in the world, and honestly, it just makes the world a better place when we understand how we can heal and we reach out and we have that support in that community. So. Thank you again for being here this week. I will have a short episode next week, and then we'll be back into the thick of things the week after. I appreciate you all. Thank you for being in my circle and for blessing my life with your stories, your experiences, and all of your insights. I adore you all. Until next Sunday.